OHSU is implementing a new data technology to address population health and value-based care. And just in time for Valentine's Day, a discussion about the science of love. It's Tuesday, February 13th, and this is OHSU Week. I'm Patrick Holmes. Josh Anderson spoke with Wade Anderson to learn more about Healthy Planet and what this program means for the future of healthcare. What is your involvement in the Healthy Planet project? Great. Hi, um, I'm Wade Anderson. Well, currently I'm the manager of the Healthy Planet's technical and analytical team. And I've spent 20 years in the fields of business intelligence and analytics uh, in the last seven years being here at OHSU. And while it provides a good foundation to build from, uh, what really sets programs like Healthy Planet apart is the opportunity to leverage people, process, and technology to make a difference in the lives of patients, clinicians, and staff. And that's different. Uh, in the past, as a lot of times, it'd be counting widgets. You know, what's the analysis of the balance sheet and those kinds of things. But here we're really working towards helping to affect and impact outcomes. And so the data and information is much different. When I hear a term like Healthy Planet, thoughts of recycling and planting trees and all that stuff um, come to mind. Can, can you explain to us what is the Healthy Planet initiative? So a Healthy Planet, um, just from a broader, broader perspective, is it's, it's a name uh, that actually came from us from our medical record uh, company uh, with Epic. And so we're using the software name, but also to describe our, our overall program. And really that, what that is about is about, about uh, population health. It aims towards improving the health of an entire human population. For example, a, a patient population might be all of OHSU or all of OHSU's partners' patients, but more commonly, they'll break it down into more discrete areas, such as patients with a particular chronic uh, condition like uh, asthma or congestive heart failure. Um, and Healthy Planet really is really about enabling patients to be more healthy, right? And so patient population management and what you're doing that is really about bringing that about. And how is Healthy Planet encouraging patients to be healthier people? Well, for really what the goal is, is it's not just data that we're providing for the providers, but it's also enabling patients to be able to take action on that information. So if a provider, uh, for example, uh, knows that a, a patient needs to have a cancer screening, uh, they would normally have as part of it, you know, age-related or other pieces, uh, these solutions alert and make the provider aware of that. And of course, in tune, they can, we can alert the patients uh, in terms of how they would take action on that. And, and if they're missing uh, areas of, that they need of additional care. And so it gives us the mechanisms and the means uh, to go about doing that. Uh, and also gives patients a visibility to you know, how those care gaps are being closed. So where does all this data come from that they're collecting and analyzing and going back and forth? How is all that collected? Several places. So if you have an encounter here at OHSU, for example, whether it's uh, in an inpatient setting at a clinic or if you're in the hospital, that data is captured right within EPIC, our medical record system. But there also are places where, say, if you don't go to OHSU, say if you have a provider in Tualatin and it's not part of OHSU, for example, that data is captured in their medical record system. And then those, that can come across to us through claims data. So that's data from, say, for example, from Moda or Regents or those other places. And we integrate that data into the environment so you can be able to see a broader view of a given patient population and understand a holistic view, what they might call the longitudinal plan of care that they would then execute on the basis of that information. 
Can you talk about how this program integrates into our mission? Yeah, it absolutely aligns with that, especially with OHSU's focus on, on all of Oregon, but also on how we're transitioning towards more of a value-based care model, uh, which is rather than being paid on a fee-for-service or utilization, uh, you're paid based on a patient's outcome. And so obviously being able to have that information across that area and provide that for providers to be able to take uh, action on that information really helps us to be able to better understand and manage that overall population. Maybe as a, as a patient, I'd see it as more of a, here's a broad brush stroke of what's happening with my health, where a doctor might look at it a little bit more in depth and say, oh, we need to make sure we're, we're hitting these things. Would they then bring that forward to the patient and kind of encourage them? Um, is that seen as a physician's role or would it be the patient on their own, like, oh, I need to work on these kinds of things? I guess in a lot of ways, the ultimate goal is really both, right? No, um, and true. so, so uh, we, we each of us have our, our own uh, realm of what we do in terms of how we carry on in health and good health. Uh, but what it does provide for the providers, whether it be the physician or a, a care manager, is visibility in terms of how we're meeting different areas around their population health and managing that. So you might have a quality measure you're looking at, for example, for how we're uh, helping patients who have diabetes. Uh, and there's different metrics relative to that and how those patients are performing. But rather than just looking only at the individual patient, we're looking at a broader population. So what can we do to take action to be able to benefit an entire population of patients with a given disease, as an example? And so as you learn that, there'll be uh, things you may have done in one patient uh, setting that can benefit additional patients. And so it's you know like the rising tide lifting all boats, if you will, right? It, you benefit all the way across that, and providers are provided with visual data of dashboards where they can see actually in terms of how their panel is, is performing relative to that and be able to take action on that information. How does Healthy Planet address population health and provide value-based care? Healthy Planet, in terms of how it provides uh, value-based care, is, is really about how we bring together people, process, technology uh, to help go after that challenge. And so what we do from an IT perspective is we provide uh, the tools in terms of providing that so that those that are, are accessing our medical record system can be able to see information and take action on that information uh, towards affecting uh, that, that better, those better outcomes. But we're also working along specifically with the clinical enterprise around how that aligns to our processes, right? So if you have a tool and it's out there, it's not a if you build it, will they come? Because they won't. There's a lot of things that... Uh, uh, people are come with and need to do on a given day. And uh, we need to make sure that that information is going to provide direct value and where it aligns right into the clinical workflow and so that they can take action based on that information. So we're working very closely with the clinical enterprise on that. And so primary care is where we're focused on first. Uh, and we're working on a number of efforts around given metrics that they have that they deem and know are important and where they will make a difference in value-based care. And how do you think that's going to change healthcare overall? It's a big change. We are learning a lot along the way. Uh, there are things that we will do that will be successful and areas that we'll learn from and, and adapt and evolve to. And the U.S. is early in this journey. Uh, and really, uh, we need to keep that right within the center of our focus that really what are we doing and what's it, how is affecting those outcomes? And uh, if we're not getting the results we're expecting, how do we adjust? You know, and what we provide is uh, processes and tools to to help in that effort, but obviously it's a, it's a really people process and technology effort that includes all of us, including the patient uh, and the provider and us uh, to make a difference. 
Have there been other models um, to follow with anything like this? I mean, other countries who have done value-based care or any kind of models that you're following with this program? Uh, we aren't really grabbing after a particular country model example, but uh, the U.S., as you probably heard, is compared to uh, virtually all other uh, nations in terms of our wealth, we pay more for care and receive less for it in terms of value, in terms of what actually is delivered in terms of outcomes. And uh, others, some other countries have been more successful, but really everybody is, is grappling that. Uh, you know, I've looked out, I kind of looked through that and said, seen many countries that are actually diving after the same thing. Uh, there are some examples out there that may be able to held up as pillars uh, in terms of how their approach is, and, and, um, but the U.S. has really uh, learned early in this model. Is this an OHSU program only, or are there other healthcare partners? Great question. So Healthy Planet uh, overall in the U.S., at least in terms of what we do, I talked with our medical record company. There's 170 sites live on Healthy Planet uh, as of now, and there's another 140 that are in process. Uh, and so it's definitely being used, and that gives us a rich network of organizations that are actually going through this right now and what they're doing in terms of transforming in this transition from, from volume to value. And uh, OHSU within OHSU Partners, of course, is along with us, Tuality, Adventist. Uh, the three of us are working towards that, as well as additional partners that will come along with us, and we've been working alongside payers in terms of that data that comes in as well. What is the goal of Healthy Planet? So as we've been sharing, it's really all about enabling a value-based care system in the transition away from fee-for-service or the volume model. If our patient populations are achieving better health and receiving better care and realizing better value, we're really at the center of our vision. Um, if we're staying within the center of our vision, it's going to require continual intervention and invention and reinvention as you know, the challenges we see today are going to be different from what they are tomorrow. So it's, it's really about staying in the center of that vision and we're going to evolve and adapt with our processes, with our technology, in terms of how people are deployed in, at OHSU and within OHSU partners towards meeting those goals. So what, what does Healthy Planet mean to me as a patient? What am, what am I going to see different um, as this is implemented? Well, one tangible thing you're going to see different uh, soon is if, if you have a MyChart account, when you log in and be able to see that information, and let's say you have a MyChart account with us, and then you have one with other providers in the Portland area. Uh, soon, you're going to have the capability to actually log into a single MyChart account and be able to see not just your OHSU data, but you'll be able to see other health information around your uh, interactions you have with those providers, uh, your lab results, uh, conversations that you're having with those providers, actions that you need to take. And so it really gives you as a patient the ability to see a much more holistic view of your own health and how you integra integrate and interact with different health services. Now, obviously, there's things that are kept separate, like if you're having a secure uh, electronic uh, conversation with a provider at, that's not OHSU, obviously OHSU providers not seeing that conversation, but you still see it in a unified portal, being able to see that in one place, one login, one place to take action, one place to schedule your appointments, be it with us or with others. And so that really gives a very, very tangible difference. The other part, if you have care gaps, areas you haven't closed, so maybe you're due for an annual screening or periodic screening and you haven't had that, uh, it'll alert and provide that information. And providers, since they're being alerted to that, have the ability to send out uh, notice, you know, not just to you, but others that might be within your given patient population. So that way we can capture many at once and make sure we're not missing anybody because they might be doing a real effective job with uh, somebody else, but they may have missed you, right? So we want to make sure you have that. And so this gives them the ability to alert and make all aware of that so we can all come in and take action. 
Man, as a patient, that sounds great. <laughs> just to have, have everything in one resource so I could just go down and see what I need to do, where my appointments are and scheduling that. Yep. That's exciting. Yeah. So with all this data that's collected, what does it mean for physicians when they're starting to look at that data and, and, and put some of the pieces of the puzzle together? Physicians actually are, are seeing a similar type of unified view. So f physicians will have the ability to be within a given uh, patient's chart, actually to be able to bring in integration of data from, from these other providers where they can see, for example, not just your lab, but the lab of others. That brings benefit for them to be able to see that coordinated location of all that data about you. They're looking at you as a patient, they're seeing it all there, they're seeing the labs you had with us, the labs you had with others, and can see it in one consolidated place. Also, what these dashboards provide is there's national uh, quality metrics that uh, we look at at OHSU, and there's uh, leadership within primary care that are looking at and managing that. And this gives them the same ability to see in terms of where we're performing on how we're uh, addressing uh, diabetes or, or other areas and be able to uh, look down and take action on that information and actually go clear down towards like a patient chart level if they need to from our system and our environment. And so that really gives us a, a step further towards uh, diving in uh, and providing that towards uh, benefiting outcomes. What kind of feedback have you received so far from people? Excitement, mm -hmm. I think, in terms of what's available. Uh, we are early in the journey, so uh, we've we've been into this effort for about a year. It's a multi-year effort, and so we've been laying the technical foundation, and so we've been able to show uh, some of those impacts and benefits, and so folks really do are on board uh, for seeing that. But we know we have a lot to go, and they know that in terms of our efforts, the engagement, what we'll be doing in terms of how this affects and changes uh, clinical workflows, for example, and how we evolve and adapt and respond to that information, uh, is it's going to be an area of stretch and growth for all of us. Well, Wade, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Thank you. Eric Robinson sat down with Larry Sherman, Professor of Cell Developmental and Cancer Biology in the OHSU School of Medicine, to discuss the science of love. So tell me what brain chemistry has to do with something as hard to pin down as love. Well, uh, so for every stage of love, it turns out there are changes that happen in our brain that can account for those feelings and these, those experiences. Uh, when we first meet somebody and uh, have this attraction for them, some would say lust, um, uh, it really has to do mostly with our sensory inputs from our eyes, interestingly our nose, our, our ability to smell people, and, and, and even our, our taste um, uh, when, we, when we meet them or kiss them or, or get near them. Uh, but a lot of how we react to that has to do with our sex hormones like estrogen and testosterone. Um, once we've met somebody and uh, started dating and got, got interested in them, we can go to this infatuation phase. Some would say romance, the romance phase where you're just constantly thinking about people and you're driving all your friends nuts talking about this person you've met and who you're head over heels in love with. And it turns out that's driven by a different set of neurochemicals. Um, they're called monoamines and they include uh, neurochemicals we've heard about like dopamine, um, epinephrine, uh, and serotonin, which all do a number of different things to our bodies and our, our brains uh, when we're in this state. And then finally, um, when we get to the point where we're deciding whether we're going to stay with somebody or break up with somebody, that is also regulated by, yet again, a different set of uh, neurochemicals and hormones. Um, probably the, one of the most fascinating things is uh, there are two hormones, oxytocin and vasopressin, which have been implicated in pair bonding, a very important thing to you know, b between mothers and children, for example, but also between lovers. 
Um, and uh, the levels of those hormones can really influence whether or not you stay with somebody or don't. And there's even studies in humans where they, they have uh, you know, certain changes in their DNA in terms of their ability to respond to, for example, oxytocin or vasopressin that may influence their ability to stay with somebody in a long-term relationship. So some people are biologically inclined to be more monogamous than others? It seems that way, yeah, uh, which raises a lot of questions about free will, of course. But, right. but uh, the remarkable thing is in the animal studies that that's a pretty simple change that leads to a massive change in behavior. Um, the studies that were done that were most compelling in that regard involved prairie voles, which are fuzzy little rodents. Um, and uh, when you look at other voles, um, they are not monogamous. They're promiscuous like most mammals. Um, but these prairie voles, the, the males help rear the young and they, they stay with their mates. Um, and it turns out that this has to do with these levels of oxytocin and vasopressin and, and where they're distributed in the brain. Finally, just to put this into context, get back to love and neuroscience. Isn't, I mean, isn't love about more than just brain chemistry at some level? <laughs> What's the takeaway for people? Well, I think we all hope so, right? Um, but I think the neurochemistry is essential to make it happen. And uh, uh, I think uh, we fall in love and partly because of what's happening in our brains, right? It's we, we, we don't really love with our hearts, we love with our brains. Um, and our brains are perceiving this person that we're, or people that we're falling in love with, um, or certainly having this incredible attraction to. And that is driving a series of processes that are, are regulating chemistry in our brain. So yes and no. I think uh, uh, if you stay with somebody long enough, um, you know, I, I think there's, there's other things that are happening beyond just that, that you know, instinctual drive to reproduce. Um, you know, why do some couples stay together for 50, 60, 70 years? Um, that's not about reproduction anymore because they can't. <laughs> so, so, um, so I think there's a lot more going on that we don't fully understand, obviously. But the initial stages of love, it's a lot of brain chemistry. <laughs> OHSU Week is a production of Strategic Communications. This episode was produced and edited by Josh Anderson. I'm Patrick Holmes. See you next week.